Think about the concept of rare. It's often synonymous with unique, valuable, precious. But what about in the context of disease? Rare diseases are defined as having an extremely low prevalence, yet an estimated 30 million Americans have one. That's one in 10 people. Listen as we uncover some of the inspiring stories of lives touched by rare disease and see how in the end, we all have rare in common. I'm your host, Andrew Stratton, and I have a rare disease. Since my diagnosis with partial lipodystrophy at age 37, I've become a voice for my community, first through the creation of the patient foundation, Lipodystrophy United, and now through public outreach and national awareness campaigns. Thank you for joining us as we explore the topic of finding balance in a life touched by rare. Joining us today is Jen McNary, the mother of four children, two of whom have a rare disease. Thanks, Jen, for being here with us today. Thank you very much for having me. So I have uh, four kids, as you mentioned, and um, my older two sons have Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Austin is 19 now and Max is 16. And so I think, uh, you know, I I didn't even know what a rare disease was. So uh, the boys were diagnosed about 15 years ago, um, 15 and a half years ago with Duchenne. And at that time, um, I started with just basic advocacy for, for them and for their lives and for their care. Um, but when the opportunity arose for them to be enrolled in clinical trials, I sort of moved on my focus to advocate for bigger, better trials, for uh, earlier data, for um, and then for access. It's amazing how a diagnosis can change all of our lives, right? Not just our children's, but but what we do for our career as well. I think that getting the children involved as is possible really keeps um, the focus on hope and it keeps the focus on progress and it it empowers, I think, children and people to know that you don't have to just accept a diagnosis and do nothing, right? Yeah, I mean, I think everybody's different. So we have folks in in our Duchenne community that um, that enroll in clinical trials, and we have folks that the only thing that they are able to do is really take care of their children um, and maybe go to the school and talk about Duchenne. So there are different levels of participation, but I think where you can make a difference, you should. And I'll tell you that I'm seeing, you know, my youngest two are 10 and 7, and they are some of the most compassionate little humans on the face of the earth. Um, my 10-year-old can be locked in a battle with my 16-year-old and not wanting to even speak to him. But if he drops something on a floor, mid-argument, he will pick it up and give it back to him. Right. So I think that it turns them into people that, that understand and, you know, my kids are proud of me. And I think not everybody can say that. You know, I, I do work every day and they believe that I'm, I'm changing things. And so I can't think of a better way to role model. I absolutely agree. How do, you said you have the four and the two older ones were diagnosed, Max and Austin. Austin and Max, actually, in that order. Um, what about uh, the two, James and Nora, the younger ones? How did they talk with people about their brother's diagnosis? So we're one of those families that talks about everything. And so all of my children, including the boys, um, have been raised knowing everything I know about the disease. And of course, that's ever-changing, right? You know, we're talking about the fact that there are clinical trials and that life expectancy is getting longer. And so 
as things have changed, my kids have been aware. They they talk to other people about muscle weakness. They talk about wheelchair use. Um, my daughter has American Girl dolls, and she has two wheelchairs, and it's nothing for for her dolls to be, um, you know, handicapped. They they understand diseases, but it also puts things into perspective. When they have a cold, they're much less likely to complain. Um, right. We have home visiting nurses that provide infusions, so the kids are not squeamish. Um, and, and so I think that it's just part of their daily life, and, and they're rather shocked when other people point, stare, or or have questions. Right. It's It's just what is normal to them. It's not rare to them. It's very common in the home. So getting back to the diagnosis, and and when did you notice that Austin and then Max um, had medical issues? So as I mentioned before, I was in school for early childhood development. I thought I wanted to be a preschool teacher, perhaps, run my own daycares. Um, and so my kids were under the microscope, uh, starting with Austin. He was three when he was diagnosed, but he was a really floppy infant, you know, in hindsight. I was only 18 when he was a baby, but I was reading about these milestones and I'm just not checking the boxes for him. He walked right. at 15 months. He always seemed weak and tired. He couldn't pedal a tricycle. I started watching the younger kids in my daycare, the peers or even younger, doing things that he couldn't. And I think we would go on a walk and he would always be the one being carried. And I, I had toddlers that were walking further than he was. Um, and so I started looking into physical therapists and, and pushing my pediatrician for some help. But I really thought we were looking at somebody to just train an awkward child. Um, so I didn't, I didn't know anything about medical issues. I thought that maybe he was just uh, sort of slow to develop. How hard did you have to push to get the physicians to take you seriously? It was about a year of requesting help, um, li limited resources. I, at the time, you know, was uh, was without the money to pay for anything, and a referral takes a really long time when you when you have limited resources and state insurance. Right. So it took over a year to get a physical therapist in my home. And once you really were taken seriously and Austin had um, a diagnosis that was that was prior to Max being born or was Max a, a, a toddler at that time? Max was a newborn. Max okay. was three months old when Austin was diagnosed. And did you pretty quickly start noticing the same um, issues with Max? Um, so Max was diagnosed because of Austin's diagnosis, um, but I will say that uh, that Max was a little bit less affected as a newborn, um, but then he, he also failed to meet his walking milestones. It's a little bit different when you're expecting it because you're not looking for it. Um, I knew he had Duchenne, so I did things like carry him anyway. I never asked him to do stairs. I never tried to put him on a tricycle. Um, I never asked him to do a long walk, so I think, I think it's quite different. He had a wheelchair when he was five. Um, so we, we always uh, tried to prevent muscle fatigue instead of watching him fail. Did you feel differently with Max's diagnosis than you did with Austin's diagnosis? You know, I think if we're going to be completely honest, I, I, I think I had a harder time bonding with him. You know, I already knew Austin and I loved him and I knew him very well. But when you have look at an infant who's just been diagnosed with a terminal illness, um, it was sort of it, it was surreal. It was sort of like I didn't want to get attached. So I, I struggled in that way where I was treating Austin's disease, but really avoiding being present with Max when yeah, he was a baby. I, I can imagine that 
that would happen. It was almost just the expectation that that they would not uh, that they would have medical complications, right? And that that changed your perspective. I imagine, obviously, that changed with time. So how how did you manage that feeling, and how did you manage kind of the change in bonding with Max? You know, Max sort of forced it. Max was a really dynamic kid and baby, and he was really easy, whereas Austin was really difficult. And he just kind of went with the flow, and he was this happy, happy little thing. And, you know, eventually the disease just becomes secondary. They don't have very severe issues until they're six, seven years old. And so you, you sort of eventually stop thinking about it, and you're just raising children. So which one entered a clinical trial first. So Austin was actually in a clinical trial that ultimately failed. He was in a safety study for folks that for kids that were not walking. Um, he was 12 um, and started in the study. Actually, he was 11 when he started in the study. And he um, he basically we didn't we didn't expect an effect from this drug. It was it was to find out if there were adverse events. So we traveled to Columbus, Ohio, and from Vermont, and we spent a couple of weeks in the hospital at various different times. And he received injections into his stomach. So going into the trial, knowing that it was really just to check for safety, um, and that it, that wouldn't uh, change Austin's health. Wh- what was your motivation in doing so? So at the time that Austin enrolled in his clinical trial, I I knew that it was unlikely for him to get into an efficacy or treatment study because the drugs in our community are judged largely on a six-minute walk test. So you have to be able to walk. So my thought was that he had the ability and was willing to participate in a study that could move science forward for a drug that could eventually benefit him, his younger brother, and other kids. Um, I truly believed that the company was going to allow these, you know, little pioneers into the larger drug study um, in a separate arm of the study. Of course, I didn't know anything about trial design at that point. So given that the company did not follow through with the expectations. Was it uh, difficult for you to make a decision to have the boys participate in further clinical trials? So the trial that Max then participated in uh, a couple of years later was an efficacy study. So I had zero hesitation uh, to participate because I knew right from the beginning he would either get drug or placebo, but it was written right into the consent form that he would then be rolled onto drug regardless 24 weeks later. Great. So I'm guessing um, in, in that since Max was in this trial and the drug is now pr- approved, that the it did show positive effects for Max. Is that correct? Yes. So Max um, is still walking at 16. His brother stopped walking at 10 and a half. Wow. Um, The upper limit is about 13 in natural history. So all of the boys walked longer. All of the boys in the original study walked much longer than natural history. We have boys still walking at 17, 18. However, the, the, you know, the disease still progresses. It just progresses more slowly. So, Max is walking, but he will still need, you know, one of these better drugs at some point. Um, but we are incredibly lucky that we've had this this drug to slow the progression. And if I could um, 
share about Austin. Austin's now been on the drug for for three years, and he is in college. Um, he is without the use of any uh, ventilation, nighttime or daytime. He is without a feeding tube. In fact, he's still feeding himself Excellent. by hand. Um, he's the only... 19-year-old with Duchenne that I know that is doing as well as he is. He hasn't required spine surgery. Um, his speech is fine. He, he really looks like a healthy kid who just can't walk. And that daily independence is so important. So that's that's going to feel really great for you. One of the things that I'm really focused on is access. I mean, it's it's going to be a battle. And of course, especially now when Medicaid's in trouble and when we are looking at cuts and when we were looking at states, you know, for example, Oregon, that has no money and they're trying to, we're trying to make the case for two patients. It's a rare disease, two patients that need access to this drug. And I've been there nine times, you know. How do you balance all of your advocacy in addition to your four children? So the key word there is help. I'm not a martyr. I make sure that I have care attendants. I'm not a nurse. I'm not a care attendant. And so the boys employ help for them. Um, I write a lot of spreadsheets. Um, <laughs> I keep a lot of notes and I set a lot of alarms on my phone. And I also drop the ball on a regular basis. I think that my boys have not been to clinic in two or three years. I hope their doctor's not listening. But I think it's important to take care of yourself. And also, I work from home. I travel for work, but I also work from home. Starting right. my company was the best thing that I could do for my family because I care, because I have a personal experience with this, and because I can bring my kids to work. Yes. I, I often have speaking engagements, and I just pick a kid. I take one kid almost on every business trip that I go on to have some one-on-one -on -one time. Excellent. Um, and they've participated in launch programs for new drugs, and they've spoken at rare disease events, and they've gone to you know testify on the Hill, all four of them. Yeah, I love— I love to involve my children in advocacy efforts because I think it keeps them um, really centered in in what matters. It, it, it's perspective for the challenges that other people face. And they don't look at my illness as something that's scary. They look at it as something that's really positive. They see all these really exciting things happen. So I think I, I'm I'm with you on being able to take the kids and spend that time with them, even especially the younger two. Yeah, I mean, I certainly look for times where we can go somewhere or do something that is not Duchenne related. I'm acutely aware that um, that their lives really circle around this disease. They were born into it. And most of the time, that's what we're talking about. Um, I have branched out into other disease groups. So interestingly, I'm working uh, with an expanded access program for the ALS community. Oh, great. And so I've really enjoyed working with other communities. And so that we're not always uh, selfishly Duchenne focused. And that's incredibly emotionally draining. Um, so, so yeah, I try to give the kids as normal a life as possible. And it's just me raising them. So a lot of times it, it ends up being the community helping me out, my parents showing up in a pinch. My oldest son, Austin, also does a lot of the childcare for me. That's excellent. Because again, it comes down to his, his um, independence. Uh, so after filming Rare and Common, um, the documentary, it, I think, 
hundreds of people, thousands of people really fell in love with your family. Has anything changed for you um, since having that exposure? You know, I think we have become people that um, that are sort of the face for the Duchenne family. I think my boys are recognized all over the place. Um, Austin actually got the opportunity to intern at a biotech company um, over the summer and continues to interact with those folks. So I do think that it 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 exposed us a lot more to um, to to the biotech industry. We also started connecting with um, other folks in the in the rare disease area. Um, for for years, I had been very very laser focused on not just our community, but specifically our drug trial, our approval. Um, I didn't have much time to look at what other folks were facing, um, and it turns out that that. We have the same issues that every rare disease has and that we can actually um, band together to have a bigger voice and a bigger effect on on the world. We were very supported by other communities, and I think that – I'm looking to lend support uh, and and teach other folks what we've learned through this process. Well, that experience is invaluable, and so I I know that we're all very grateful for some of the accomplishments, but then also your willingness to share, because really that's how we're going to move forward, right, is, is work together and share that information. Speaking of, do you have any advice for parents who are looking to publicly share their children's stories? So there are multiple opportunities to get involved with uh, sharing everything from, you know, blogging to reaching out to your closest organizations, whatever you identify with. We have about 45 Duchenne nonprofits, and they've all got slightly different focuses. So, you know, they offer opportunities to to speak. They offer opportunities to um, to share stories and to be in print. They offer lobby days. Rare Disease Day is coming up at the end of yeah. February. And so you can go and talk on the Hill. You can have meetings set up for you where you go and share your experience with lawmakers. And um, I think it's also important to take advantage of any time where you can meet with your legislators in office, at home. Um, and then there's there's other opportunities with biotech companies. If you start to look for companies that are working in your disease area, we do great things like lunch and learns. Actually, tomorrow night, um, Austin and I are going to speak to Sarepta Therapeutics, their new hires that are going to work in the UK and start running that um, that part of the company. We're going to go and, and inspire them a little bit and tell right. them what a, kind of a difference they can make. And so I don't think that being on television necessarily or being in documentaries necessarily is is what everybody needs to do. It's not necessarily the thing that gets the most attention, but sometimes you can go speak to one researcher and inspire them. Um, You know, one little personal story. When... When I was first looking for somebody to listen to me, I called all the local newspapers and I posted on their um, on their Facebook pages from Vermont. I had one kid that was doing well on a clinical trial, Max, and I had his brother who was waiting and nobody was listening to me. There was no data out. Nobody was listening. And I was watching my older son progress and watching my younger son get better. And that's sort of the epitome of our story is that angst. And I got the little old town newspaper to run a story, and it went viral. And this 
healthcare portfolio manager from New York City called me. He got a hold of me through the uh, through the newspaper, and he said, "You know, I want to help Austin. I own some of the stock of that company. Let wow. me get you a meeting." Wow! So fast forward to today, he's speaking at a launch meeting at the company because <laughs> he ended up getting hired, and he's actually the chief of staff at the company, just under the CEO. After. Um, being motivated by getting Austin drug. You know, he did everything from joining our advocacy organization to then working with the CEO who realized this is the most motivated human on the face of the earth. And he travels from New York City four days a week. He's here in Cambridge um, working at the company. And I think that that is the type of thing where it's a story where you can you can share your personal story, you can share your struggle, and you can motivate somebody to make it their life. To yeah. make it better for your kids. Absolutely. I genuinely have goosebumps from that. And it, I always say mama bears are the best advocates. And that's just the best story. It's just to never give up. You don't, you're not heard. Try again. Somebody else isn't listening. Try again. You know, they're not paying attention to you. They're not taking it seriously. Try again. And you did. And what a fantastic little story, as you say, a personal story just turned into, well, Austin and Max and James and Nora and, and you and your success and the balance of that whole family. It's just really a brilliant story, and it's really been a pleasure to have you share it with us today. Thank you so much for your time and and for all that you do for the rare disease community. It absolutely makes a difference. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Rare in Common podcast. Tune in for more at rareincommon.com. Listen to other episodes in the archives and sign up to find out when new episodes are released. Rare in Common Podcast. Click, listen, feel, 